One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. You're very welcome along to Second Captains at the Irish Times. We're all here. Myself, Owen. Hello. Kieran is there too. And Hi, Ken. Ken is also yeah, you know the way I usually like to start these shows, Ken? Yeah. Which is to say in a sort of light-hearted manner. Yeah. Just ease everyone in, both the listeners and ourselves. I think if I'm listening to something, I don't really want to start with something too heavy. Yeah. Mm. Um, and equally when you're speaking to a microphone as we're doing right now, you, you just want to kind of get into things slowly and I'm afraid Ken we're going to have to get straight to it this time okay there's a big topic that we're talking about today and it's a very getting very, bigger yeah and I apologise to our listeners for going straight into the deep end here but it's a, it is getting bigger Murph it's a touchy subject for Kieran. that's the issue of weight weight yeah Andy Lee is going to talk to us about why he's gone from middleweight to light middleweight yeah moved down in the weight unfortunately Murph is kind of going the other way at the moment so I'm wary of even bringing it up yeah you haven't revealed your angst on air yet Kieran. no um What's going on? I've, I've, I spent my entire 20s basically telling everyone how amazing my metabolism was yeah. because I have the worst diet of yeah. perhaps yeah, any human being. I've rarely seen a person eat as much crap and stay in as good shape as Murph up until the until, last six months. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The last six months. Basically, my metabolism was some kind of miracle yeah. and uh, I suppose I shouldn't give, a, uh, you know, give out about yeah. the fact that the miracle is now over. And I'm expanding. Oh, I think daily. You're I, like I think uh, little Humpty Dumpty there. I am. I don't wobble I, off that chair. Gigantic muffin. I actually, you know, I bought a suit yeah. on Sunday, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, I was a, I'm a forty jacket, and uh, if the pants are thirty four, I might have to get them taken in. But you know, around there, around there, you know, like literally. <laughs> I mean, I, I was setting myself up for a fault. I didn't even, I didn't even realize. Yeah. He goes, well, you're a forty two jacket. Yeah. And the pants are at 36, and we'll let them out of it. We'll let them out of it. <laughs> so, well, you know, you do your job, and uh, I'll do mine. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, it is. It's, I feel it's tough, bad but about this, because I've always... We've sat there in the office again, we've seen Murph munching on his biscuits. Yeah. And I've, I've often thought, and sometimes I've even said, I really hope this comes yeah, back you've, to bite you yeah. someday. You've said it a million times. I, I, say, I basically say it every day, because it just, it just frustrates me how he gets away with it. But now that it's happening... In yeah. front of our eyes, I take no joy in it. I take no joy in it at all. It's a terrible, really terrible, terrible thing. I know, I know. All I can do is promise you to try. I'll, I'll try and turn this round. Um, and I know you sound that, like David Moyes. Yeah, listen, I'm gonna try. I'll try to try. 
that's that's all I can say at, at, at this moment. I'm, I, you know, and I, I thank you for your support. You know, you could have been, you could have been worse about this. So I, I appreciate. Well, you can find out what you need to do, Murph, to move down a weight division because we're talking to Andy Lee later Man. on about uh, he fought. Well, he was just above the light middleweight limit, fighting in Denmark last Saturday night. But he's made a pretty big career decision to go uh, down a weight at this stage of of his career. So I'm interested to know why he decided to do that because last we heard. There was a middleweight fight against Matthew Macklin, possibly on the cards, but uh, whether that can still happen, I don't know. Maybe you can move back up for that one. How much weight did he have to lose to move down, like in kilos or pounds? Well, it's going to go pounds. I never, I never talk kilos. Uh, I guess sort of five or six pounds. It was one hundred and sixty down to one hundred and fifty-four, so it's six pounds. Six pounds. Mm. That's not that. Oh no, I don't think. uh, Well, we have to talk to him about it, but I, I don't know. I suppose if you're already not carrying a lot of excess weight, it's not a lot for. Fat roly polies like us three, but for, for actual in-shape, in-shape professional boxers, athletes, yeah, quite yeah, a yeah. bit. Okay, um, but we'll talk about that anyway. Robbie Henshaw is another subject that we'll uh, discuss today with Bernard Jackman. The IRFU president Pat Fitzgerald was speaking last week. He said that uh, I think it was Shannon Side Radio was he speaking on. He said all I can see is that if the national coach feels that Robbie Henshaw will be better playing in another province, then the green team, I'm afraid, has to come first. And this is in the context of, I guess, Connacht being the big losers in the new shakeup of the European competitions. Mm. Uh, now the RFU have actually uh, like, even in, the sa- in that same conversation he was talking about how the RFU are totally committed to Connacht and they have put more and more money in over the last while so that's definitely uh, that's definitely fine but just this idea of um, them still potentially losing their best players to Munster or Leinster or whatever it would be I guess he could I guess it's the, the player's decision at the end of the day though if he wants to stay I mean, he can be a one club man if you want yeah, or you can play in the Heineken Cup. This is the thing; it's not as though you're still in the same competitions. You're you're probably going to have to choose. Connacht can qualify, and it's, but if they don't, you're choosing between playing in by a mile the biggest competition in your sport, or, or not, not playing, playing in it. At and all. that's you know the 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 choice has become a lot more stark even in the last two months, really, hasn't it? You know, like Henshaw, I think signed a two year contract at the end of last year, and. You know, even since then, the landscape has changed quite dramatically for him. Well, let's talk to Bernard Jackman about this right now. Bernard, first of all, we haven't chatted to you since this new European Rugby Champions Cup uh, came into being. We talked quite a lot about the subject as it was being uh, as it was being hammered out, really. But uh, personally, are you happy enough with the competition as it looks now? Yeah, I think so. I think it'll it'll give us a better competition. I think the Heineken Cup um, has been, you know, brilliant for, for European rugby and uh, it, was, it was great to play in it. But I think that, you know, all the players realised that there was um, certain unfair advantages in certain groups, uh, particularly with groups with Italian sides. Um, and the fact that the Rabo teams didn't really have to um, compete in their league to, to gain qualification. So, uh, I think now it's a it's a much fairer playing field. You're going, it's more elite, twenty teams, um, and you know the, the Irish and the Welsh and the Scots and the Italians. Okay, albeit not completely um, fairly in terms of a, of a top six, top seven, but it is more competitive. And an entry to the to the Champions uh, Cup will be based rugby championship will be based on uh, performing in in your domestic league. So I think from from those points of view, it's uh, it's better. It's a little bit. Um, I'm a little disappointed that the ERC, you know, guys in there have lost yeah. their job. Uh, but in fairness, the French and the English were pretty adamant. That was one of the big things I was hearing, you know, from from uh, from meetings held in in France was that they really wanted to take control of of how the competition was run, and they felt that they weren't gaining the maximum. Um, 
the one monetizing it as, as, as efficiently as I suppose the French and English felt that they, they should be and I suppose that was just they were they were some of the fall guys for that but um, yeah, yeah it, makes, it, it, it certainly seem. seemed yeah it certainly seemed that the uh, that there was an attitude in France Bernard and, and definitely in England that uh, that the Irish really were getting too much out of this, getting more than we deserved out of it, probably. But it, the way it's gone now, it, I mean, it looks like we'll talk about Connacht. It looks like for the likes of Leinster, Munster, should be fine. They should qualify, and uh, it won't be an issue. But is this the first step? I mean, are you, all the money that's there in France now, in particular, are we looking maybe in five, ten, fifteen years' time at Ireland ultimately losing too much? Uh, that that France and England will have all the power. Uh, well, that's the worry, you know. I think that the only thing that's stopping the English clubs um, being a, a force is the salary cap. I mean, you've got very, very wealthy, you know, guys. We saw Saracens, I think they lost 3.7 million uh, last season. Um, but yet their their power in the transfer market, you know, uh, shows no sign of of abating. Uh, Bristol are owned by what people say is a billionaire, you know, and uh, they have a, a, a very ambitious plan. Um and I, you know, I think the salary cap does keep a a, a little bit of a, a break on, puts a bit of break on the English teams buying power, and also the deal they have with the RFU where they get uh, grants for the amount of English qualified players that they they bring through and play over the course of a season. The French clubs, you know, uh, the French clubs all got two million extra uh, from the French Rugby Federation for next season just to come back in and and, and agree to form part of this championship right. cup, Champions Cup. They also got, we're all, they're all going to get an average of, I think, 2.6 million more uh, from the new TV deal. Um, and yeah, the, so they're, you know, certainly the, the salaries over here um, and the budgets over here seem to be increasing dramatically year on year. There's, there's huge rumours around that um, money from from uh, the United Arab Emirates is going to, people from there are going to come in and start buying clubs um, and, and using rugby now as they have been using soccer um, as a way of, uh, I suppose, building, building um, their profile. So if that does happen, you know, there's no, no one knows how, how big the budgets will come in France. But I think the RFU, in fairness, um, Irish players want to stay in Ireland and, and the environments um, and the facilities and the, the opportunity to play for your province is, is a huge draw on Irish players and uh, we have to remember as well that you know the Irish province in there if you only really have to recruit three or four big names uh, f- you know, in terms of New Zealanders, Australians uh, and South Africans uh, each year and then they have you know two or three project players whereas the French clubs you know they're looking at they're looking at 16, the limit is 16 foreigners and most clubs have 16 foreigners. So, um, you know, really the RFU and the, the Irish province just have to be very selective um, and I suppose, you know, make sure they don't make many errors uh, in terms of the, the guys they bring in. Whereas the French clubs, because they're recruiting so many foreigners, um, they're probably less selective and uh, probably not as as careful with their money yeah and Toulon I suppose they're, they're very successful so you can't say that the money isn't being well spent but Neil Francis is writing about this in the Sunday Independent at the weekend and he seems to be very uncomfortable with the whole idea of what their owner does and um, the, the, essentially just ploughing this money in and um, I guess it's what Arsene Wenger would call financial doping it's something that yeah. a phrase that comes up I mean you work in that is it, does, it, does the money over there corrupt 
I guess the spirit of sport, if that isn't too airy-fairy a question. I don't think so. I honestly don't think so. And by all accounts, Toulon are posting profits. Um, uh, it's an interesting business model. You know, he, when they were Pro D2 uh, seven, eight years ago, which is the second division in France, um, he, he got involved in the club and, you know, he went and, and signed Tano Manga, Giovanni Kirk, um, and these big names. And that was that was how he wanted it to go. And um, they're obviously a, they're, their business model is obviously a cruise you know, very, very experienced, high-profile players. And the city and the region have got behind them massively. The city, uh, the Mary give Toulon $3 million a year uh, towards their rugby budget, you know, because of what they bring to the they bring to the city. And, yeah, as I said, officially they make, you know, according to their books, they make a profit. So um, his business model, you know, on paper it looks like, you know, he, he, he's running a good business, you know, whereas uh, someone like Stade Francais or Racing Metro, um, who don't have the the hardcore support that um, that a Toulon or or a Claremont or even a Toulouse have? Toulouse have the biggest budget. Um, you know they're really relying on 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 the the wealth and the uh, their benefactors um, to keep signing checks at the end of the year to make sure that the, they balance the books because at the end of every year in France your books have to balance whether you have to go and get a, a three million uh, euro check from. From wherever you have to have it in your account, uh, and you have to pay off your bills, or else you won't get a license for the following year. So, I suppose that's the only positive thing about about French rugby. If a club does lose the run of itself um, for a year or two, you know, there's always that onus for them to balance the books um, because if they don't, they won't they won't be able to renew their license. And um, you know, to such an extent, the Stade Francais two years ago nearly went to the wall. Um, you know, uh, and at the last minute they found a, a new owner. And uh, clubs who want to go down that route, um, it's it's pretty it's pretty dangerous. And uh, I, I don't find the clubs. I think listen, I think you speak to any of the, the the big names who play for Toulon. You know, they they enjoy coming to the French Riviera. They enjoy playing with other guys they've played against international rugby, and and they enjoy living and playing for Toulon and and for the history behind that town. And uh, it hasn't corrupted it yet, to be honest. I okay. think that it's still, it's still, it's still, it's still a good game. From an Irish point of view, Bernard, the, we're looking at Connacht playing Munster this weekend. Connacht are currently where they, they're eighth in the table, need to be in the top seven to to make this new competition. There's all of a sudden this different kind of a pressure there. Is it Connacht really of the Irish teams who are going to be the losers or are going to be properly affected by the new competition structure? Well, I suppose you have to say. I think I think this is Connacht's third season in a row um, in the in the Heineken Cup. But the reason they were in there is because uh, an Irish team had won the Heineken two years, and then um, two French teams played in the final last year, and Leinster won the Amnon, which which granted them a place. The new format doesn't doesn't guarantee the team that wins it uh, an extra spot. Um, there's going to be a playoff between the seventh place French team, the seventh place Aviva Premiership team, um, and after next year it'll be the eighth place Rabo team uh, but the problem Connacht have is if they finish in the top seven in the in the Rabo and uh, there's not an Italian a Welsh or, or a Scottish ahead of them um, they won't make the Heineken Cup and you'd have to you'd have to say that at this current moment Leinster, Munster and Ulster have stronger squads um, and bigger resources behind them so unless one of them you know makes a has a very very bad season um it's going to be hard to see Connacht getting a, getting ahead of of those at the current moment. Now the RFU do seem to be um, backing them. You know they backed them last year in terms of bringing in you know Craig White and obviously bringing in Pat Lamb and um, they brought in uh, Soliano, but he obviously he obviously left early for personal reasons. But now they've they've backed Connacht to sign 
you know, Aki Bundy, Bundy, who's a very, very good player, uh, 24-year-old, um, who potentially could be could have been an all-black if he stayed in New Zealand. So he's he's a bit of a coup, to be honest, and he certainly would have been, you know, if you think that Leinster are probably looking for a, a foreign 13 to replace O'Driscoll, Munster certainly be looking for someone to replace Casey Luwalawa. Um You know, I... I I have a pretty good idea what's out there in the market in terms of uh, 13s. And mm. to be honest, Bundy was probably the best. Uh, really? Uh, yeah, he was. He, he was. He's a, he's a real coup for them. He's a he's a player with a huge amount of talent, and I think um, I think they did very well to get that to get him signed because uh, certainly if it wasn't and if it wasn't a, a Leinster or a Munster looking for him, he certainly wouldn't be uh, out of place in any of the big clubs in in France or England. He's he's a he's a really good player, and uh, I think it's. It, you know, it's positive there if you back that signing a three-year contract as well gives gives them a little bit of stability there. Um, the problem, I, I suppose, the worry for Connacht is that they haven't been able to hold. You know, uh, Griffin. Obviously, the, the reason they have to bring in someone like uh, Bundy is because they're losing Griffin to London Irish. So, um, and obviously, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about uh, Robbie Henshaw and whether he's going to stay or not. But I think Philip Brown, you know clarified that a little bit today and saying he's under contract and um, I suppose you have to look at the reason that Robbie re-signed for two years he's obviously happy there and uh, also he's, he's trying to finish his his, um, his degree in UCG which I think he's got two years to run so um, yeah it's, it's, it's just it's, it's, I suppose it's what David is forward a new high performance manager what kind of role he's going to have in terms of moving players around is going to be interesting yeah what's, in, uh, what's interesting about the uh, Robbie Henshaw situation is that a lot of players find themselves in this kind of Robbie Henshaw's particularly uh, good one and particularly good prospect but Pat Fitzgerald the IRFU president had said last week that uh, all I can say is that if the national coach feels that Robbie Henshaw will be better playing in another province then the green team I'm afraid has to come first it's a strange thing it doesn't always exist in in a sport but it's just the way that Irish rugby is set up that uh, I guess the top of the pyramid is certainly supposed to be um, supposed to be Ireland I don't know if it always works out that way but what would you like do you agree with that do you agree that Essentially, if Joe Schmidt decides Robbie Henshaw's better off playing in the Heineken Cup with Leinster, if it's Leinster, um, that's what has to happen. It's a very hard one. I suppose the player himself would have to be um, open to to the move. I know that when I uh, when I came back from from Sale, um, I had a, I had a choice between Leinster and and, and Connacht at the time, and you know Eddie Sullivan was the Irish man, Irish coach, and you know he sat me down and said, "Listen, I think you're better." It's going to be better for your international prospects to go to Connacht because Shane Byrne was playing in, in in Leinster and uh you know he wanted he wanted me to, to to get game time so you know I went back and I went back I joined Connacht I signed for Connacht and I suppose a large part of that would be because the Irish coach um asked me to do that you know and that's it's a hard thing for a player to to say no say no to I suppose it'll be all done on an individual basis obviously but it depends on on whether Joe himself thinks that Robbie's going to to develop um, in Connacht and you know the fate he has in, in in their in their in their culture and their environment and their coaching stru- coaching structure. Um, but the worry would be, I suppose, that you know if Connacht don't make the Heineken Cup, that he's going to miss out on six or seven games or the champion uh, the rugby championship. He's going to miss out on six or seven, eight, nine games mm. um, at that level, you know. And um, is that going to be a hindrance to him? Uh, to to play, you know, to make an impact for Ireland in the Six Nations or the World Cup or November Internationals. That's the that's the question. But I, I would like to think that you know the focus of the RFU would be to uh, to really continue to to push Connacht and, and um, to create an environment there where because you have to remember, like Connacht have won the under twenties into provincial um, over the last couple of years, I think twice. Uh, their academy is actually producing 
guys who were coming from the academy into the into the first team where some of the in Leinster, Ulster and Munster there is blockages you know where there's good talent coming through but because obviously the guys in 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 the first team or at such a high level or current internationals, there's no real avenue for them to get games except um, the rabble games in and around the Six Nations or during the Six Nations um, or during the November International. So I think it's great. We have four teams and look at look at the way Italian and, and Scottish rugby is, um, you know, struggling with only with only two. So I would like to th- put, think the other way that, you know, the IRFU, I know it's hard in terms of financially, but you know, continue to, to back Connacht like they have over the last couple of years and uh, to make sure Connacht are, are up there as a top six team in the, in, in the Rabble. And if, if that's not good enough to qualify for, for the Ruby Championship, um, you know, that's what can you do because of the way the competition has been structured. But if they're if they're a top six team in the Rabble, okay, you know, the players are going to miss out on, on the Ruby Championship probably, but they're still going to be playing at a very, a very high level. And it's going to be a good enough environment for, for those players to hopefully perform in, in the green jersey. We mentioned David Nusifor there, who is the the new uh, performance director. This is something that has been uh, mooted for a while, this position. And uh, he, he was mentioned quite a while back as the guy who was going to fit it. But it seems to have taken a little bit of time to make it all happen. Is this a, Does he sound like the right man for the job? And is this a very necessary job? I know it's something that Joe Schmidt, I think, thinks is quite important to have. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's very important. I think that the problem has been... Um, Listen, this isn't a new. It's not a new problem that there's guys who basically talented players underneath the the, the first teams in, in 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 the provinces who can't get game time, whether they're behind a foreign player, whether they're behind a current international, and um, you know with our playing pool, um, you know still quite small. It's very important that we have a little bit of flexibility, uh, but no no director will be of a province is going to release. Is going to want to release even a third choice player because they're going to get judged on on where they finish in the in, in the Heineken Cup or the or the Rabo at the end of the year, and uh, they know that at some stage you know they may need may need that guy. So as a director, Ruby, you got to be very selfish. You work for your province, uh, um, and you're going to be judged on on what happen, how successful they are. Whereas in the overall Irish picture, you know Joe Schmidt and and David Nusifor now they've got to have, I suppose you know uh, a very sole focus on on the overall state of Irish rugby. Um, and I think what's happened historically is that uh, it basically those decisions about whether to move a player or whether one province can actually uh, approach another player have been made by a committee. Um, and the committee is made up of guys who represent uh, the provinces. And it's very hard to uh, to not have your provincial um, you cap on there, you know, and it's been very hard to actually get anything pushed through. Uh, so the only guys you've really seen moving are guys who've been out of contract, um, or have you know have like guys like I suppose Isaac Boss um, was kind of surface to requirements behind Room Pinar, and they had uh, Paul Marshall, so there was an opportunity for Leinster to, to to sign him and bring him down. But in general, um, there hasn't really been a many situations where I suppose the Irish manager or the Irish coach has been able to say, listen, you know, just we've three good tight heads there. You know, we've, we've only a foreign tight head in one province. You know, I think it'd be better for you for two years to go there and, and move. And also, I mean, I'd, I'd like to think that there might be a flexibility to, to do some loan deals, you know, um, in season, um, where, you know, David Nusifor or Joe Schmidt or whoever it may be, you know, has that influence to be able to say, listen, you know, it'd be great for him to to move to that province for, for three or four months or for six months, and then you can have him back, you know, because um, our overall objective is to is to have a strong Irish team. And uh, if we have talented young players who are, 
blocked temporarily, um, you know, it's going to be far better for him to, to, to get game time. Because look at someone like Robin Copeland, um, who went away, you know, and he, he played in the championship in England. Um, he got the game time there at a at a semi-professional level, which gave him the opportunity to play for Cardiff at a professional level. And now he's come back to Ireland as, as, a, as a better player. Whereas if there's a little bit more... Um, uh, I suppose leeway given and, and and better communication or 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 better planning. There's no reason why you know a Robin Copeland can't get that game time in Ireland and never have to go away because sometimes when they go away, um, it's not easy to get them back. And also you lose them. You know this season he, he's been outstanding for Cardiff, whereas he could have been outstanding for Connacht, for example, uh, for for this season. So hopefully that David Dusafora will his appointment will. Um, would push through and improve, I suppose, you know, what has been maybe a little bit of weakness for us. Yep. Well, listen, Bernard, we'll let you go. I know you're preparing for your game. You're, you're, it's at Bayonne this weekend? Bayonne, Bayonne at home Saturday. So, uh, yeah. You're well, Hopefully, Good stuff. yeah. Thanks, <laughs> we'll, man. We'll let you go. Bernard, thanks so much. Bye, bye, bye. Hang on. Did, did Bernard just say full metal jacket there? He did. I, I, was, I, I was almost, I was speaking over him too much at the end there. But yeah, I asked him about going to Bayonne and playing there. And uh, he said, yeah, it's full metal jacket time. Mm. Well, good, great phrase. Great phrase. Great phrase. Well, what does it mean? Uh, what it means, you're going to get the crap punched out of you again. You remember Brian O'Driscoll going to Bayonne? Do you remember this and before the 2007 World Cup? Right. Uh, oh, is this the, the kind of warm-up game? Yeah. yeah. Ireland, Eddie O'Sullivan has admitted since that he didn't quite get the build-up right and they ended up having to squeeze in this extra game mm. against a French team, probably in the second division at the time. Just before Ireland played Somewhere in, in the south of France, before Ireland played France. And O'Driscoll got... Well, the whole match sounded disgusting. Yeah. The Irish team go over there can't retaliate really because you, well you don't want to get any suspensions you don't, you don't want to get sent off all those things and have to take a lot of punches off these wired up Frenchmen trying to make a name for themselves and O'Driscoll was probably the guy that you're, you're going to target if you are one of those yeah, wired up Frenchmen it's, uh, do you remember that happening though? I remember it was that such night. a huge thing because everyone night, yeah. thought he was out of the World Cup there was talk that he fractured his cheekbone and all. he was lucky that he didn't yeah really lucky I mean you know the, I think you can still see the scar on Brian Driscoll's cheek, I think. I, I, I'm not entirely sure if it's... Up a mark, yeah, I think that's from that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, I do remember that. I mean, <laughs> the 2007 Rugby World Cup is nearly like, you know, you're not allowed to mention it anymore, but we were quite hopeful going into that tournament. And the idea that Brian Driscoll would cop a really cheap shot in a warm-up game that would put him out of the entire World Cup, that was quite a big deal when it happened. Bayonne is like the carry of France. Is it's it? In, well, it's in a kind of geographically corresponding position but I think it's not the Kerry of France in the, in the way that Kerry is where a lot of people would go holidaying maybe you do holiday in Bayonne I don't know but it's known oh, in, yeah. rugby ter- it's rugby, in rugby terms it's known as a bit of a it's a full metal jacket territory Ken if I was to borrow a phrase from a fur jacket <laughs> well it's beside Biarritz you yeah, know and Biarritz is very nice and Bayonne not so much corner of France I think it's left. called the southwest. Yeah, southwest. I mean to describe somewhere as like the Kerry of a country just because it's in the southwest. It's in one of I mean, the I corners. think, Ken, in fairness, you culturally, just say... Culturally, maybe a little bit distinct, you know? And they don't like people coming to their part of the world and winning football matches. Mm. They don't okay. like that. They, okay. The people of Bayonne and the people of Kerry have that in common. That uh, is good news, by the way, that Bernard was talking about there, about Bundy Aki, the player who's been signed. Bernard was saying he's been scouting and he knows all the 13s around the place and that this guy is the best that's out there so that's huge so clearly there is shouldn't be too downbeat about Connacht like we are talking about Henshaw specifically there but uh, it does seem like that. that's a pretty pretty huge signing the way Bernard's talking about it there and uh, it is also worth noting Murph that Bernard Jackman appeared to be speaking to us there with uh, some sort of a bird or a bird like creature on it his was, shoulder it was, it was as if just right at the very end of the conversation there a little bird just landed on his on his fingertip 
and rather than scare it away, Bernard just kind of continued to talk rugby to the to the bird and to us. <laughs> you know, and the bird was just in trance, like sh- we were. So. Are you sure he doesn't just have a soundboard of French? <laughs> I don't know why a bird is particularly French, but. Sounds that will make people in Ireland wish they were where I am yeah. over here in France. Yeah, well, so you can press anything, any sort of French sound, any animal sound, and he just went for bird at that stage. If I was Bird of Jackman, I would certainly have that soundboard. I'm, to be honest, I th- actually, I think it was just a bird, though. What's, go- <laughs> what's coming up later on, Ken? That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm, walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. Well, and we're going to talk a couple of books today. A couple of, uh, couple of football books. Well, uh, who are you talking to? I love a good football book. Yes. Kindle, uh, Kindle editions or... Old-fashioned old paperback. I mean, bo- both are available, you know, Kindle. I'm warming to the Kindle, Murph. I'm, I'm still old-fashioned about books. I like the I like the hard copy. The feel, the heft of a book. But the idea of the Kindle, the price of, of books and Kindle, I mean, there's a lot to lot to recommend. The Kindle. Apparently, apparently, it's you know really bad for for writers or whatever the cheap cheap price. Um, oh, they probably want to get more money. But for it's work. good for the consumer. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, can you say that? But I mean, you know, I, you know, when you release your novel. Yeah. You know, suddenly you're going to be on the other side of the fence here. Yeah, you know? I know. Well, I'm hardback only, twenty nine ninety nine. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> signed by the author. Signed by the author. Yes. Only three hundred copies. The books that we're going to talk about are um, number one is by Rob Sm- uh, Rob Smythe and Scott Murray. Um, it's called Angasm is the Final. It's a book of you know the minute by minutes on the Guardian website. Yeah, it's basically a book of those about classic World Cup matches. Um, oh, so they've gone back. They've Reported on World Cup matches as though they're... As though it's minute by minute, oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, and we're also going to talk to Diego Torres, who wrote The yes. Dark Side of Jose Mourinho. The special one, The Dark Side of Jose Mourinho. Which is a gripping and hilarious character study of the world's most famous manager. It is, yeah. You, you were saying that as always a cliched you will never look tribute. At, you will never <laughs> yeah. look at Jose Mourinho the same way again after reading this book. It's, it's unbelievable. Well, when I say unbelievable, that might suggest that it's full of, it's a tissue of lies, as Mourinho himself has, has hinted, um, has said. But he would say that. We talked to Sid Lowe about it last week. Uh, just, I think you might have thrown in a question towards the end. Um, and he was saying, look, Diego Torres has connections, does his homework. And everything that he has written so far, I think it's El Pace he writes for. El Pace, yeah. Everything that he's written so far has turned out to be true or certainly mm. If not 100% true, certainly close enough to it that yeah. you, this this is a very trustworthy, very good journalist. Closer, than, it, closer than anyone else was getting We're not talking about all the football last night, no? Manchester City? Oh, yeah, we're going to talk They've about that. They've thrown it well. away. Manchester City have a serious lack of... Lack of... You don't want to say it, but you will write it a, a la Jose Mourinho. Just one word. <laughs> I'll write, just balls I'll write. I, don't have a pen. I, don't have, I don't have a pen in front of me. Okay. Yes. Circle the word. I think I know what you're going to write. Don't they, though? Um, There's such a... Well, to be one nil up against Sunderland after two minutes, and then to—that is a shockingly bad. Just result. in general, they fell over the line to their one Premier League title. They've thrown. Well, they they came on strong actually when they won the yeah. Premier League. They they won their last what six in a row or something like that. That's how they caught Man, Man United in the end. But they had 
it looked like Turned thrown it away before Maybe they didn't fall, so much fall over the line. If they, they, they more romped to victory. They, great fell on, they fell on the last bend <laughs> and then uh, picked themselves up and mm. stormed past. Uh, Manchester it's United. like De- Devon Lock, only Devon Lock Got gets up, up and, and wins. Managed to win, yeah, yeah. basically. Andy Lee is in studio. Andy, thanks very much for calling into us. Yeah, thanks very much for having me here. Alan. I hope you're keeping well. Since the last time we spoke, you've made a pretty big career change. You're going down to light heavyweight, light middleweight. Actually. Light heavyweight would be a pretty spectacular <laughs> career yeah. change. You're going down to light middleweight. You've fought a fight over the weekend, which is close to that weight. But can you tell us, first of all, the thinking behind going down in weight? Um, it kind of just came about something that Adam had been saying to me for the last, maybe over a year now. Um, you know, I... He kept saying to me, you can make like middleweight. No, you can. And I always just dismissed the idea. You know, I've been middleweight since I turned professional, 2006. And actually, when I was 15, I was fighting heavier weight than I am now. So, like, to consider that I would be fighting six pounds lighter mm. from what was already tough to get to make to 160, uh, just didn't seem reality. But I recently went back to England after having two weeks break about a month and a half ago. And... uh I was weighing 170 pounds, and my body fat at the time was, I think, 14%, 14.5%. And um, he said, Andy, for a boxer, ideal body fat is 8 to 10%. And um, he said, if you if you get down that to that percentage, he said, drying out, you only have to dry out maybe 3 or 4 pounds, um, which would be considered moderate for a boxer. Mm. Most boxers would be drying out maybe 6 to 8 pounds yeah. before weighing. And so, even though I was sceptical, I agreed to it and um, just cleaned up my eating. The training remained the same, and um, we mo- he monitored it the whole way, like we monitored it the whole way through. I had my testosterone tested before I started the diet and during the diet, um, had my blood taken, just because your testosterone levels can drop if you have a weight change, you know, a serious weight drop. So, for a boxer, obviously, you need high testosterone to have that that aggression, and. Um, also monitored, you know, my power, my strength, which we do strength circuits and um, power, power routine, you know, uh, training sessions with weights and that, and made sure that my weights remained the same. If and throughout they did, and some of them improved it actually as a, as we went through the training camp. So it was one of the whole way, and he, uh, you know, the food was just basically clean food, um, no no sauces and no no processed foods, um, no dairy, but wheat. No, didn't cut out weed or gluten, and uh, just kept it really clean. You know, and that basic. was and that was enough. You said you didn't have to particularly change your the actual routine of training. It was just the diet. Yeah, the training was exactly the same. The training with Adam is very hard. Anyway, I think if you train training there, you're going to lose weight. And because the training was been so hard, you know, I'd always allow myself the odd treat here and there. And that's that's where I was 160. You know, middleweight. I would I was comfortable like. I'd always be allowing myself the you know rich tea biscuits after a meal with a cup of tea or the odd bar of chocolate here and there and um but you know to go ahead with this diet plan diet and and eat the way I've been eating it was like the next step that I needed to take in terms of <clears throat> like my preparation for a fight like if it was a pie chart everything in the pie chart would be really strong in terms of training discipline you know I live the lifestyle mental approach and the only weakest point of, of the pie chat would have been my diet and um now that I've you know I've addressed that it was the, it was like it was the next step I needed to do to to 
It's what all the elite athletes are doing anyway. It's what I should have been doing for years, but something that I needed to do and have done now. So you're in jockey territory now, are you? Just <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> wasting, I think they, they they call it, which is a grim enough term by the sounds of it. But you mentioned there that you were, uh, reluctant wasn't the word you used, but you, you took a bit of convincing that this was the right plan. Yeah, I was sceptical because obviously I'd for years been middleweight and considered the big middleweight. Um, and the fight, the fact that to be like, you know, I'd never even ever considered being like, if anything, I'd consider going up in the weights because I was tall and could easily fill into it. Um, but like middleweight now, here I am, you know. What was the, was it purely that you mentioned, you, you explained very well there, what Adam Booth saw in you and where he, he thought you could go and where you could, you, physically you should be. Was Is it also that there's an easier path or a more straightforward path to a world title shot at light, at light middleweight? Um, certainly easier fights in terms of physicality. Um, I'd have a lot of advantages in terms of height and strength and natural size. Um, you know, middleweights, six pounds doesn't seem a lot, but it is a lot considering that most guys who fight at middleweight would be coming from 180 pounds to make middleweight, where I'd be just be coming from maybe 168 to 170 to make middleweight. Um, so by the time you rehydrate, those guys would be coming into the ring a lot bigger and would be naturally physically stronger guys. So in terms of that, there's a lot easier fights. Um, but skill-wise, it's maybe, light middleweight's probably the hottest division in the world for contenders. You know, when you have Canelo Alvarez, um, Angulo, Lara, um, Carlos Molina, Demetrius Andrade, who are all the regular champions. And then, of course, you have Floyd Mayweather, who is, you know, the the pound-for-pound best fighter in the world. How would you go against Floyd Mayweather? I'd knock him out. <laughs> <laughs> How would you fancy actually that that sort of challenge? Oh, I'd love it, you know, um, to fight him. But it's, it's really, you know, it's kind of pie in the sky stuff at this at this stage to even consider a fight with him. I'd have to beat like several of the contenders in order to even get it, be with a chance to fight him. You fought uh, in Denmark over the weekend. Frank Horta was your opponent. Uh, this was, it was about a pound above the light middleweight limit at that stage, so you're near enough down to it at this point. You got by in a majority decision. Um, at any stage, did you feel when the decision was about to be announced that you could actually have lost this fight? No, I clearly won five of the eight rounds. Possibly six. One round was pretty close. But um, I, I knew I'd won the fight, and even into the last round, I knew I had to fight one. Um, but Frank Otto was a good fighter, and like, and I was pretty disappointed after it. Immediately after it, um, but I think I did him just, you know, just justice because he's actually a better fighter than I gave him credit for, and probably was a li- little. I underestimated him a little bit going in there. Um, tough man, and was came to fight and came to win. You know, it was big. He, I got tense. It was a big opportunity for him. You know, after the fight, we, we actually spoke and. Um, he he really you know saw it as his chance to win and and probably a mistake by me and something that I should have uh, shouldn't have, a stupid mistake really to go in there underest- <coughs> underestimating him but he came to fight and he gave me a good fight and uh, you know I, I won so it's I still still take it as a win. Was there any issue with the weight loss? Did you feel like you would lost any power no, or anything no, like that? No, nothing uh, physically. There was no problem. Um, it wasn't even a fitness thing. I was wasn't even breathing hard after the fight but it was more of a mental just a mental lapse um and i didn't you know didn't give him the respect he deserved going in there mm. i know i remember uh, speaking to you after a, a fight in germany when i think it was germany 
and you made the point at that stage that you, you find the fights difficult when it might be on an undercard, whatever it might be on, if the, the crowd aren't all in there at the time, if there's mm. if it's not a big occasion. You, I suppose like a lot of sports people, you thrive off the adrenaline that's created by the big occasion. Uh, and I understand that in Denmark, maybe, was that a factor? Was there a bit of a flatness to it? Yeah, a little bit in some sense. It was kind of off-the-wall kind of fight. You know, it was an Esberg Denmark, um, you know, who's not many people would have heard of the place. It was on the undercard to... Uh, European light heavyweight title fight who most guys wouldn't have heard of and then I was fighting a guy who no one really heard of you know and uh, but it was an important exercise to go out there and get the fight and get eight rounds you know um, but like it's, there's no excuses you know really you could say it was a bit you know it is hard to get yourself up for those fights but you have to be professional go in there and do the job um, I did the job and I won the fight and uh, I'm happy you know I've learned that for over the years, you have to celebrate every victory, no matter how small it is, you know, um, because enough of the times in life you lose, you know what I mean? So, And when you lose, it hurts. So even if you win, even if you don't look good winning, you still win and you must, you know, you must be happy with that. Yeah, boxing in particular. I mean, fights are, well, hopefully you're going to get a bit busier now, but your last couple of fights you've won very quickly. You've knocked out a couple of guys in the last year. So uh, it's, it's such a strange sport like that, that there's no point being too hard on yourself. Maybe you learn your lessons, but you enjoy it and move on. Yeah, exactly, and I take note of it, and um, I definitely there was lessons learned there for me and for Adam. And you know, what would have been the big lesson? Yeah. The mental approach. Um, for, uh, just looking over the last year, like, I went in there thinking that uh, honestly, I thought I was going to knock knock him out or stop him. I I looked at him and I saw his technique, and I said, I can catch this guy while he's punching at me. If I punch in between these punches, I'll catch him and I'll knock him out, being bigger and stronger. Um, and that's what I thought. And I didn't give him the respect that I deserved. Where in other fights where I've fought against guys like Alex Bonima or um, Fitzgerald recently, I expected hard fights and I expected to go the distance. And I maybe over gave them too, guys too much respect. So there has to be a, me, you know, a middle ground there someplace that, that I must find. Um, but you have to respect everybody but also have the killer instinct as well. So there's some... That would be the biggest lesson I learned from the fight. What is the plan now? Is it to fight as often as possible at light middleweight and take it from there? I have a fight scheduled for May 17th in Cardiff, which is on Sky Sports. That will be at light middleweight, and I hope it to be against a quality opponent, um, similar or if not better than Frank Carter. Um, there are a number of opportunities available that are on the back burner, which might um, derail the May 17th, one which could be a place on the, on the card of Cotto, versus Martinez, which is June 7th in New York, which would be a big opportunity for me and one of which I would take. And another one is a possible fight with Demetrius Andrade, who's the WBO light middleweight champion. That would be later in the year. So um, until those bigger fights get made, I plan to stay busy, stay active, and not let, you know, against quality fights where I know I'm going in there and having a hard fight, not where I'm just blasting guys out in one or two rounds. So that's the plan, and to keep training. That's definitely all light middleweight. The Macklin dream um, is over for the time being. Macklin's going to fight Daniel Giggle, I think, soon, and that's a tough fight. Um, if the fight Macklin ever came up, I'd, I'd make an exception and fight at middleweight for him. And if the right fight, and if another big fight came up for middleweight, I would still make an exception. But um, for now, my future is at light middleweight. And you feel like you're in control of things now, do you? Because it's, it can be tough for a boxer that you're reliant on people making deals happen and various. Uh, almost uh, ancillary issues but you feel like you're you're in control of yeah. what you're doing for the and next regardless year. it's my journey anyway you know um, Macklin and me our careers were never dependent on each other 
Um, but it's my journey, and it's about with being like middleweight. It's about being, you know, the, the leanest, fastest, strongest athlete in the in the lightest frame possible, and that's what I have at, at being like middleweight. So. Um, whether the big fights come now or they come later, they will come because I'm going to keep winning and uh, keep progressing and eventually the big fights will come. We wish you well for the rest of the year. Andy, great to talk to you as always. Thank you. you. Mm. You're my my grandmother, no disrespect. When I used to get in trouble, she looked at me and said, hmm. And I know a butt whooping was coming at the back. I'm an alien. Think about it. Roy Jones is born. Jane, Jane, James Tony is born. Iran Barkley is born. But I'm telling you right now, I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. I should have been on this game 15, maybe 20 years ago, man. And then that's why I said I'm an alien. I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. But I'm telling you right now. I'm an alien. Just Google it and get your own information. I'm an alien. He should be gone. I'm an alien. Google it. I'm an alien. Mm. I'm an alien. I'm an alien. Let's just go back to Andy Lee. He, he didn't want to call advice to you about uh, losing weight. Of course. But it's, it's always good to have second captain's favourite boxer, Andy Lee, in yeah. studio. Um, good to hear he's in good form. Cut out the crappy foods, what you have to do, and also just keep up that punishing training regimen. Hmm. They're the two main things. I don't know do. which one of those two is less likely to happen. They're both extremely unlikely to happen, though. A couple of things that struck me chatting to Andy there. One is that Adam Booth sounds like a nightmare to train with. This was a David Hayes trainer. He's he's the guy who mm. um, who Andy was referencing there. Clearly really good at what he does and gets his boxers into amazing shape. Uh, you probably want your boxing trainer, I guess, to be tough old mm. so-and-so and he seems to have that uh, but the other point is that it's funny that boxers sometimes come to the re- realisation late that there's maybe see, it's not that there's more that Andy could do because he was fighting a middleweight and he made the weight comfortable and he felt good and felt strong but that there's different ways to manipulate your body maybe you remember Bernard Dunn towards the end of his career suddenly had this meat oh, meat is the wrong word but yeah. suddenly had this much more of a strength a strong look to him much more of a toned kind of a physique, much stronger looking physique, and he credits Mike McGurn with that strength conditioning coach. There were different things that he could be doing with his body. Now, I don't think Bernard changed weight at any stage, but um, or weight class. But it's, yeah. it's kind of interesting that, of course, these guys are doing all they can, all that can be done. But then maybe you get to a certain point in your career that you just look at something else. That, yeah, there's always something else that can be done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, fingers crossed. I can get my my body fat ratio down from seventy eight percent. <laughs> um, I'm, I've been described in the past as skin and bones. I'm actually now just fat and bones. Oh, stop! This is. I think ah, was, come on. Come on. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm just. Uh, you're, you're, I'm in a dark place at the moment, no, right? But you're, I'm, you're, I'm, I'm you're trying to exaggerating your, your issue here. Yeah, you know, it's 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 fine. Don't worry about it. I mean, no one's looking at you anyway, so. Yeah, that is true. Just, yeah, you're only looking at yourself. Eat up and enjoy your food. Enjoy life, Riff. Keep enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Kieran. That's really unhelpful advice. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Ken. Do get in touch. Follow us on Twitter at secondcaptains, facebook.com forward slash secondcaptains. We will chat to you very, very soon. In fact, we'll chat to you a little bit later today if you're listening on Thursday because we'll have second captains football for you right then. Take care.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.